Oh, my goodness. That last song, just Jesus paid it off. Jesus paid it off. I just want to lift him up this morning. Jesus, it's all about you. Every person, every story here, Lord, it's all about you. Thank you for the worship this morning, Lord, reminding us that Jesus sought me while a stranger, while an enemy. You died for me, pursuing me, Lord, with tireless feet until I would look into your face, Lord, and see the love that you bear for me. We pray this in your name. Amen. It's such a joy to gather together in worship, isn't it? To be together and fellowship together. My name is Pastor Joe. Uh, and this morning, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Acts. And up until this point, we've been following the church, uh, its birth and its growth. Um, but today we hear of one of the most triumphant days in all of church history. When Saul of Tarsus meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. One of the most triumphant days when a man who is persecuting the church becomes God's chief instrument of furthering the church all in a moment on that road to Damascus. When God transformed the Sanhedrin's chief instrument of persecution against the church into God's chief instrument of furthering the church. The passage that we're going to be focusing on this morning is found in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. If you're using a few Bible, it's page 863. Now would you guys all turn there as we continue our collective worship this morning. Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. Buckle up, it's a bit of a long one. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for him letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, and they heard the sound but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a man named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying and in a vision he has seen a man by the name of Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports of this man 
and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is God's word. The last time I preached, I preached on a passage uh, that I joked was a layup. I talked about how even though I, I love basketball, I'm not very good at it, and that I, I routinely miss the wide open shot that I should make. Uh, and some of you guys found that entertaining because you probably know me and, and have seen me miss a lot of layups. But this passage, if that one was a layup, short, sweet, straightforward to the point, about five or six verses, pretty simple. This passage is a bit of a half-court shot. And if you think I miss a lot of layups, I definitely miss half-court shots. It's long, it's somewhat daunting, but it is incredible. And the story leaves an imprint. The story itself is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. This is the man who accounted for 13 of the 27 New Testament books, a man whose influence has shaped my own thinking and my own impressions of the grace of God, my understanding of the heart of Jesus and how to walk as he walked. And I'm sure that is the case for many of you and for many throughout all of church history. It's something that I think Luke himself saw the significance of because this story that we're going to be covering today is actually given three times in the book of Acts. This is the first time in Acts chapter 9. It happens again in Acts chapter 22. And then again after that in Acts chapter 26, given three separate times. And I was encouraged when I saw that because I read the first 19 verses that I was going to be preaching from and I felt like, man, I could preach three to four sermons on this. Don't worry, I'm not going to, I promise. But there's so much here, church. There's so much here for us this morning. So much deep abiding truth. The great weight of glory in this passage is hard for one man to hold. And thank the Lord that I don't have to. So I pray that the Spirit would lead me this morning as we attempt to consolidate these 19 verses into one sermon. This story is so significant that um, many years ago, a man by the name of Frank B. Morrison, he was a young, aspiring lawyer and atheist, attempted, uh, he set out to disprove Christianity. And it was his opinion that if he could disprove two biblical events, he could discredit the entire Christian movement. The first was, understandably, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the second was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And so he set out to disprove, full of passion, eager to show why these stories had no historical 
um, verification, had no ability to approve these and felt that the case against them would be great. As a lawyer, he built his case. I need not say to you all that he failed miserably in that attempt. And finding that actually the case for the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and the resurrection of Jesus was overwhelmingly in favor of them. And in the process, he gave his life to Jesus, having his own Damascus Road moment. This story carries weight. And as we set out this morning to read it, to attempt through the Spirit's revelation to understand it, I pray that we wouldn't rush through this passage this morning. I think the best way to find our footing in a passage like this that has so much to it is to orient ourselves once again back in the overall story of Acts, reminding ourselves of where we are. Remember, Acts, Mark said this quite a few times in his sermons. Yes, it's a collection of historical verifiable events, but it's a hand-selected. Remember that. It's not just all the stories that ever came about the early church. Luke took them and compiled them, hand-selecting them by the inspiration of the Spirit to tell a deliberate Spirit-led story for a purpose, an intention that God had for these stories. And if you look at what that story's purpose is, in Luke chapter 1, Luke gives us sort of his own reasoning behind it and the reasoning that God had laid on his heart. He said to Theophilus, to, I want to write this, these accounts, Luke and Acts, to you as an orderly account so that you might have confidence in the things of which you have been taught, that being Jesus and his gospel. So church, as we read this, remember, this is here so that we might have confidence in the risen Jesus and his gospel. And there is no testimony like it that I have ever read. So the story, the overall story that we've been following as a church, and forgive me if this is a recap for some of you, has been to follow the birth and growth of the early church. From the 120 that lived in the upper room in prayer, waiting upon the spirit of the Lord to come, to 3,000 that came to the Lord, souls saved in a single day at Pentecost when the spirit came in power, to thousands more day by day, moment by moment, spreading throughout all of Jerusalem. The spreading was like what C.S. Lewis called the good infection. The gospel of Jesus Christ's hearts being changed. And Jerusalem was lit up like a fire. We don't know. We've never seen anything like this before, church. Heart after heart, soul after soul, captured by the risen Jesus and his gospel. Through the obedience of his disciples and through the working of mighty works. And so we see that this church was growing at an explosive rate. But up until this point, it has been contained within Jerusalem. And we saw initially, and actually the last message I preached on in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that the initial success of a church within Jerusalem was met with great favor of the people. But that favor would not last. And if you remember several weeks ago when we heard of the the message preached by Stephen, the first act of persecution began in Acts chapter 7 when they cast the stones and murdered Stephen after his sermon 
through the moving of the Spirit. And there was a man there who's first introduced. For the first time, we see him present. We hear him introduced. As the first stone is cast at the forehead of Stephen, coats are flung down at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Luke, remember, compiled for a purpose, hand-selected stories. We hear of this character, Saul. At the moment that persecution first begins, so too does our introduction to this young man named Saul. I had a, a really good teacher in literature, Lisa Meyer. She's actually probably here somewhere. Maybe she's doing equipped. I was homeschooled, but I, from a very young age, had a passion for literature and English. I've always loved stories. I love Lord of the Rings. I love Narnia. I'm just, a, my wife calls me a nerd all the time, but I love stories. And what my teacher would always tell me is, you know, Joe, every good story has a protagonist and a, yeah, see, you guys had good teachers too. A protagonist and an antagonist. Now, follow me, if you will, for a moment. I believe that Luke, up until this point, is setting us up to see this man, Saul, in an antagonistic light. We've seen up until this point, the great heroes of the church beginning this incredible explosive movement all throughout Jerusalem. And now we see this mysterious figure, enter stage right villain, standing in appreciation over the deaths of the young hero, receiving the honor of the men who have the blood on their hands. Luke is doing this for a purpose. He's setting us up. But who is this man? Who is this Saul? Because there's not anything up until this point known about him. Once again, put ourselves in the, in the shoes of Theophilus, reading this account for the first time. Now, I'm sure by the time this account got to him, he would have heard of him. But let's pretend for a moment that he hasn't. We've heard nothing up until this point. Who is Saul of Tarsus? Well, luckily, we don't have to have just the perspective of an um, ancient reader. We can also have a 21st century perspective. So for a second, continuing in our, our sort of theme of uh, literature in English, let's build a character chart for this Saul character, this antagonist to the church. We know that Saul was at the time of Stephen stoning a young man. It's said there in uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 58. But how young? Most scholars believe that he was no older than 32 and as young as 28 here. Truly a young man around my age. And yet we see he has tremendous power and influence. If you remember, the other time we read about people casting their coats at the feet of someone, who was it? Jesus himself as he rode in a donkey. Now, shortly later, their fickle love would fall away and they would shout for him to be crucified. But these same men, it seems, now casting their lot with this man, Saul. He had tremendous power and influence. We know that Saul was of a city named Tarsus because it's mentioned many times over and over again. Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus. Now, Tarsus was actually, I was surprised to find as I studied for this, a very significant city. It was the capital of the province of Cilicia within the empire of Rome. 
It was a great hub for Greco-Roman culture. And it was one of the three most influential academic cities in all of the Roman Empire. Athens, Alexandria, and Tarsus. It was right up there. It was like Harvard or Yale, the University of Tarsus. And so we see that this young man growing up in a culture that was very much on the forefront of secular culture, very much on the forefront of academic life. But we know that this man did not grow up secular in a secular light, but rather as a Pharisee. Philippians chapter three, verse five, Saul goes into detail about who he was. He said, a Hebrew of Hebrews of a tribe of Benjamin, a very well-respected tribe. And so we know, and he also says, after the manner of the law, a Pharisee, a Pharisee. So we know that not only was he a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, but he also was one of those pesky Pharisees. But actually those Pharisees were very, very well respected within the religious community of the Jews. And so we see this well-respected, influential young man. We also know that this man had a great level of education beyond probably being educated in, the, in, that, in that culture that was very um, academic. He was also educated from a young, young age in the Jewish traditions and showed great intelligence and aptitude for it. So much so that he was selected to study under the great scribe Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a rabbi who was so well-respected, he was known by his peers by the name, the beauty of the law. He was the guy. It would be like if one of us got selected to go study with John Piper or Tim Keller, maybe even beyond that, one of the great thinkers and teachers of the word. And they, most scholars believe that he left at the age of 13 from Tarsus to go into Jerusalem and study. This young man was powerful, influential, ambitious. He was also a Roman citizen as well as a Pharisee and a Jewish person. There was not a single door that was closed to Saul. Young man of great privilege. And if a door was closed to him, I wager he'd probably kick it down. We see from the beginning, this young man was a man of great power, influence, and privilege. But there's one last characteristic that I've yet to mention. And it's probably his most defining characteristic. Saul hated Christians with a burning, furious anger. To Saul, the church was the great enemy of the Jewish faith and Jesus at its head, the greatest of enemies. The very lifeblood of Saul's existence was to see the church crushed into rubble and every last person belonging to the way cast into prison and destroyed. Sounds like a nice guy, doesn't he? This is the man whom this story is about. Don't get it twisted. He was a piece of work. So now, finally, some of you might be saying, we get to the passage itself. Acts chapters 1 through 
but now with the needed context behind us to kind of give us our footing as we go. Now, I've seen it broken down, this passage, many different ways. I've seen it broken down into four parts. I've seen it broken down into more than that. But for the sake of clarity, I've decided to break it down into three parts. Verses one through two, Saul's plans for Saul. Verses three through nine, what I'm calling the divine arrest. And verses 10 through 19, God's plan for Saul. So let's dive into it now. So we remember, and again, we've come up to this point in Acts and we've seen that now that Saul has been introduced, now he's been revealed as the chief orchestrator of the persecution against the church. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. Right afterwards in Acts chapter eight, we see he's ravaging the church. He's wreaking havoc amidst the believers. So much so, And so sudden was the onslaught of Saul that the people fled, scattering to every corner of Judea and Samaria. Remember, the church up until that point had been fully contained within Jerusalem or nearly fully contained within Jerusalem. And we heard just the beginnings of the spread of the gospel when Philip, right before this, gives the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. But... What's beautiful about this, as I read this, is I realized, man, the very thing that Saul was trying to stop, the spread of the gospel, he caused. In his attempt to crush the church, he spread them out. They probably would never have left the comfort of Jerusalem, their home. They put down roots there. They had great community. At the time before Saul's coming, they had great favor. Why would they leave? People who immigrate to new places, they they very very rarely do it if the grass is greener where they are. And yet God, using Saul even then, scattered the church. But this enraged Saul. Uh, I want to get this quote right because I loved it so much. Uh, John MacArthur said in his sermon about Saul, he was like a war horse who had the scent of battle and was breathing it out in fury in anticipation of new conquerings. I love the way he put that. And if you don't believe me, look at verse one. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That word breathing out is the Greek word empneo, which actually means to breathe in. It's like giving us the picture that every inhale of his body, what animated him, what filled him up, what gave him life was murder and threats towards God's people. Saul is furious. That word, meanwhile, what happened right before this was the gospel going to the Ethiopian eunuch. It's almost like Luke is showing us that, listen, while God's working here, look at this guy. I I picture Saul's ears like the cartoons with the steams coming out of the ears. The guy is mad, not happy. But we see that he is fuming, but don't worry. Saul always has a plan and he's got a plan now. So he has word somewhat how through his spy network that there has now been a new growth of the church in a city called Damascus. Damascus was a beautiful city. So maybe it attracted people. It was known as the jewel of the desert. It was a white city set amidst green palms. It was a city must, that must have drawn the believers who were displaced from their home. 
and a man was leading the church there named Ananias, who we'll see later. But now Saul's fiery gaze is set upon Damascus. Look out, Damascus. But don't worry, the the miles stretch long between Jerusalem and Damascus. It's about 160 miles north. But Saul had a plan. He would obtain from the high priest authority to go as far as Damascus and make arrests in the name of that high priest. To go and make arrests in the name of the high priest and to throw them into prison. And now that takes us to verses three through nine. And we see that there was another arrest planned, but not one that Saul was planning. I want you to picture this for a moment. The great Saul has his finally, after miles and miles of travel, days and days of travel upon horseback or camelback. I don't know what he was riding. He finally has his eyes set upon the jewel of the desert, Damascus, the white city. And he's imagining all the people he's going to meet, all the admirers that are going to come and help him in his attempt to squash this dangerous movement. All the synagogues he's going to go and speak in, all the Christians he's going to throw into prison. And just as he's nearing the gate, just as he's nearing the end of his journey, a bright light shining brighter than the midday sun knocks him to the ground. We're told that, that, that the hour and the moment that Jesus knocked Saul from his horse onto the ground was shortly before he arrived in Damascus. And I always pictured for some reason that it was nighttime because, you know, then you could really see the glory of Jesus, you know, really the contrast be way more cinematic that way. But we see in Acts chapter 26, when Paul is retelling this story to King Agrippa, that the glory that shone, shone at midday. I don't know if you guys, I mean, even out here in Mount Laurel, midday sun can be pretty bright, but on the road to Damascus. And yet the glory of the risen Jesus shone brighter. Brighter than the midday sun. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? These words are the words that jumped out to me more than any other phrase in all of this passage. Saul knocked from his horse, a blinding light he doesn't know where it's from. And out of that glory comes a voice speaking his name. And not only is it speaking his name, but it's speaking in his native Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? The believers? Me. When I read those words, I realized what Jesus was saying. He was saying, as Skip Hetzig, the pastor, says, every touch, every lash, every stripe on the backs of the believers on earth is felt in heaven. Every suffering, every bruise, 
Every hungry stomach in prison is felt by Jesus. And now he's speaking from the glory down to this fool, Saul. And we see the tides of power turn, not slowly, not, you know, in 10, 15 minutes, but right away. The great Saul, who moments before on the road considered Jesus to be the great enemy of the Jewish faith, now saying, who are you, Lord? I can hear the fear in Saul's voice. Who, who, who are you, Lord? And I guarantee the one thing he did not want to hear from that glory was the, what the response was. I am Jesus. Uh-oh. Whom you are persecuting. The fear that must have filled him at that moment. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He was now in the hand of the risen Jesus at the full and complete power and glory. He was in the hand of Jesus now. There's one phrase that I want to point out, and I know I got to keep moving pretty quickly here. One phrase I want to point out here that isn't given here in in, uh, chapter 9, but it's given later in Acts chapter 26, and I find it really important. When Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Shortly after that, he also adds, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Some of you are like, what's a goad? Sounds kind of gross. A goad, I found out, is a poking stick for cattle. And people, if they had their cattle pulling their plows, they would poke them in the butt, try to get them to move, to go in the direction that they were supposed to. But sometimes a dumb cow would kick out against that goad and that goad would stick in their foot. Ow. But here is the beauty of this. Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. This is not the first time Jesus has been knocking on the door of Saul's heart. It's been a long time coming. And Saul has been kicking out against God's poker over and over again. Get off me, get off me. Watching Stephen look into the right hand, at the right hand, I see see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. That had to have left a mark on Saul. And Jesus is poking at his heart and poking at his heart and poking at his heart, poking at his heart. And Saul's resisting and he's resisting. And now we see that Jesus says, enough. I'm knocking you to the ground now. Reminds me, uh, being a dad, I have a two and a half year old and a two month old. The two month old's great. And I love the two year old, but she is in a tough stage right now. And I've poked out, you know, it's time for bed, Elena, you know, get ready. In five minutes, we're going to go up to bed. No, I don't want to go to bed. Elena, you know, we're going to go up soon. No. Finally, I just got to pick her up and throw her over my shoulder and walk her up. Because she's kicking out against the goads and the pokes. So finally, because I love her and I know what's best for her, I got to pick her up and carry her to her bed. It feels like that here. Jesus has finally said enough. 
Let's continue. The men traveling with Saul, actually, no, I'm skipping here. He replied, and now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. We see now that the mighty Saul has been brought to heal in a moment and now is obeying the words of the one whom he tried to destroy moments before. It's amazing how fast that shifted. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they laid him, led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink. The great Saul, who had left Jerusalem strong and confident, powerful and influential, armed with authority of the high priest, and his mind filled with the great plans for the destruction of the church, now entered into Damascus, weak, fearful, blind, and led by the hands of his servants, walking in obedience to the one true high priest, whom he had moments before called his great enemy. That takes us to the last piece and part of this passage, God's plan for Saul. No longer is it Saul's plan for Saul. That's out the window. It's God's plan for Saul. In Damascus, there was a disciple by the name of Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. We see that Jesus works on behalf of Saul here. What I love most about this part of the passage is that Jesus doesn't tell Saul to turn tail and return to Jerusalem. He doesn't say, all right, you've been, you've been really bad. Time for you to turn around, go back to Jerusalem, admit that you're wrong, throw yourself into prison. He could have done that. He had full power. He was fully in Jesus's power now. But what Jesus says is, no, go on as the way that you thought you had planned for yourself, but really I had planned for you all along. You thought you were going to Damascus to arrest my people, but really you were going to Damascus to meet and receive from my people. I have an appointment for you in Damascus. Go. We see that he always intended this in his plan and that he had appointment for Saul all the while in Damascus. I love the way that Jesus speaks here to Ananias, speaking of a man named Saul from Tarsus, as if Ananias doesn't know everything about this man and what he has done. And we can hear the incredulous sound of his voice here. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man. I know all about him and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But Jesus doesn't even enter into that fear. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That was it. Ananias, was, he'd heard enough. Then Ananias went to the house of, the, of, house of Judas and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said these powerful words, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Spirit. 
Immediately something like scales fell from the eyes of Saul, and he could see again. And he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. You can't make this stuff up. This is one of the things I'm sure that Frank Morrison, the lawyer, when he set out to disprove this account, couldn't get past. Who would make this up? This isn't good storytelling. No, 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 no. Saul's supposed to get his comeuppance. He's supposed to get knocked to the ground by Jesus and destroyed. And then the church rises up and is victorious. That's a good story. Saul of Tarsus. Murderous threats against God's people. Influential, powerful, strong leader of men. In one moment brought low. Weak, feeble, led by the hand of his servants. What is this? What manner of king do we serve? That he would have a plan for this man. And we'd be lying if we didn't join with Ananias in our incredulity over these, this plan that Jesus had had since the beginning. I want to wrap up. And I know that there's a lot in here, and I know that I threw a lot at you this morning. A lot of moving parts, a lot of cities and facts, figures. There's so many applications in this text. I mean, I, I wasn't kidding when I said I could preach three to four sermons on this. There's so many I could list off. We could list off that we as our believers, we're walking on our Damascus road and we feel God calling us to new things, calling us out from maybe what we're living in. We need to be reminded that what, what the call is, is to walk in obedience, maybe not to return and backtrack on everything, but to continue to walk in obedience on that Damascus road and let God lead us. Or maybe it's that we want to be like Ananias. We want to be people who, no matter the person Jesus calls us to give the gospel to, we would go and we would say, brother. And we would not say to Jesus who he and who he cannot rescue with his redeeming grace. Or maybe it's a message for those of us who feel too far. For those of us who feel that we've done too much. We've broken faith too many times that we must be seen as an enemy of Jesus. Friends, there is no more enemies but the one enemy. And that he does not see you in that light. And Jesus... His grace is deeper than your sin. His mercy goes longer and further than anyone has ever traveled. His glory shines brighter than the midday sun. And he's calling you by name. Don't kick against the goats. Don't tell him who he's allowed to have mercy on. You're, you are solely free to admit that the grace that, that Jesus gives is free for everyone else, but for you, it doesn't work. For you, it's just you've done too much. 
Well, have you persecuted the church? Have you thrown countless Christians into prison? Maybe you have. I don't know your story. But if you have, you're no different than Saul, who became his chief, uh, the chief instrument of Christ and furthering his church. But there's, to me, one final application that rises above the rest, even above the ones that I've just given. We're told that the story, the main character is Saul, and I would agree with that. But even so, I would say this story is all about Jesus. The whole story of Acts, while it covers Peter, while it covers Stephen, it's all about Jesus. Jesus, the mighty, conquering this man who thought he was great, showing mercy and love. Jesus, who proved to Frank Morrison, to us, and to all the people who have read Acts, that he is alive and that the grave did not conquer him. What other proof do you need that a man like Saul in a moment turning into a man like Paul? We know that Jesus is deeply connected to his church. He's connected to you. Are you suffering right now? Are you hurting? Every stripe on earth is felt in heaven. Jesus, the righteous one, is worthy of our confidence. Remember, this book was written so that we might have confidence in the things of which we have been taught. You've been taught that Jesus is worthy of it all, that he died for your sins, but sometimes we lose confidence in that truth. Well, this message is here to remind us, have confidence in the risen Jesus. He is worthy of all your praise, of all your trust, of all your fears to put in. Trust him with those, with all your doubts. He's worthy of all your praise, all your love, all your trust. I'll leave you with um, the words of Saul himself in Philippians. Philippians 4.11. And if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteous under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having the righteous of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteous from God that depends on faith. Lord, we thank you for this testimony, reminding us of the power, the love, the tender care, the glory of the risen Jesus. I pray, Lord, as you send us off this morning, that we would go in full confidence of the one who is greater. 
fill us up with that confidence. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in the hearts of those who have yet to receive your grace, who've yet to believe it for themselves. Lord, knock them down, overwhelm them with your glory, and show them that they are yours. We pray this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Now go in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, 